From the Bristol Herald Courier, I'm Delana Matthews, and this is On the Record. Professional baseball has been a part of Bristol since 1911, but it has been part of the local community for the past 50 years. Hosted by DeVault Memorial Stadium, formerly known as Randolph Field, the Pirates hosted its first game there on June 25, 1969, a 10-9 win for the Bristol Tigers against the Kingsport Royals. Baseball has been played at 1501 Euclid Avenue in Bristol, Virginia every summer since then, serving as an affiliate for the Detroit Tigers for 26 years, 19 seasons with the Chicago Watts, and they're currently in their fifth year with the Pittsburgh Pirates. Through it all, some of the best players, managers, coaches, and even entertainers in the Appalachian League history have played in Bristol for the last 50 years. For all the troubles that DeVault Stadium is currently having, professional baseball continues on in Bristol. The hope is that it remains here for years to come. It was June 25, 1969, when play ball rang out at Randolph Field in Bristol, Virginia, along Euclid Avenue. It was the Bristol Tigers playing the Kingsport Royals. In the first of what's now been 50 straight years of baseball being played in Bristol. Of course, Randolph Field is now known as the Vault Memorial Stadium and Boyce Cox Field. On that night in 1969, the Bristol Tigers won 10-9. Dan Heather hit a three-run home run. Mike Belgic hit a four, added four hits. And Bristol held on for a 10-9 win in the first game played at DeVault Stadium or what was in Randolph Field in front of around 2,000 people. And we're celebrating our 50 years this week in the Bristol Herald Courier. There'll be a story in Sunday's paper about uh, Bristol having baseball for 50 years. It'll also be about the uh, DeVault Stadium and how it has um, had baseball all these years, how it came about having baseball, um, some of the stars that have played there, I, I was able to interview several people who were relate, who had th- something to do with the uh, with the with the team. Uh, I talked with Malin Luttrell, who uh, is the uh, currently the president and general manager of Bristol Baseball Incorporated. I spoke with Mark Daniels, the baseball coach at Virginia High, who certainly has had a lot of success at the Vault Stadium, winning uh, five state championships there on that field. And also, I spoke with. Um, Mr. Bob Childress, who was the uh, president of the uh, our director of the Parks and Recreation in Bristol, and was the, the man who helped get the field ready to go in a pretty quick time to get it ready for that 1969 season. Uh, Bristol has had baseball now for since 1911. Uh, baseball stayed in town through 1913, then left, came back in 1921, won their first Appalachian League championship in 1922 as the State Liners. And they played that at Old Geneva Field. They were baseball left in 1920 after after the 1925 season. Landed back in 1940 at the old Shaw Stadium, and were were there through 1955. They played as uh, they were called the Twins, but they were not part of the Minnesota Twins uh, association because they weren't even in existence yet. But they were part of the Giants, Pirates, and Yankees. But after the 1955 season, they left again, and baseball was gone until 1969. In 1968, the Bristol Chamber of Commerce got some businessmen together, our business leaders together, to look at bringing baseball back, and they were able to do that with the Tigers in 19, 
69. The Tigers remained in Bristol all the way through 1994. When they left, the uh, Chicago White Sox came in from, 19, from uh, 1995 and stayed through 2013. And currently the Pittsburgh Pirates arrived in 2014 and they're still here. So in 50 years, that's not bad having three teams uh, have been, haven't been affiliates here. Um, there's a lot of good information about the Pirates out there, how the Tigers and the White Sox. There's a lot of information. There's been a lot of great players. Uh, of course, Alan Trammell, a Hall of Famer, played right here in town. You had Lou Whitaker, uh, Mark the Bird Fidridge, Lance Parrish, Travis Fryman, Tony Clark, some really big names. The White Sox have had rep- been represented by Carlos Lee, Gio Gonzalez, Danny Wright, who played uh, high school baseball at Sutherland South. And even the Pirates have had a few get to the major leagues, including Austin Meadows, who did a rehab assignment here a couple years ago and now is an all-star for Tampa Bay. And uh, there's also been plenty of good managers here, Jim Leland, Pete Rose Jr., uh, and numerous others that have been here over the years. Um, There's also been good coaches that's moved on, executives. We've had even in-game entertainment, such as Max the uh, Papkin, who was known as the Clown Prince of Baseball, and the Dynamite Lady. So there's been a lot of excitement in Bristol over the years. There's been other players that maybe didn't play in Bristol on their home field, but they played here coming through, such as Joe Maurer, Daryl Strawberry, Vince Coleman, Manny Ramirez, and many, many others. Um, Baseball, you know, right now baseball's struggling a little bit in Bristol just simply because of the the stadium needs to be uh, renovated and is in need of some help. But that doesn't mean baseball can't continue to thrive here in Bristol like it has for the last 50 years. Uh, just I urge you to read the article on um, Sunday in the Bristol Herald Courier. Uh, you know, if there's anything that needs to be added, or just let me know. Give me a call or send me an email to Brian Woodson with the Bristol Herald Courier. Uh, this is a a, lot, a large story with a lot of information. There was a, so much here that I had to leave a lot of it out. I wasn't able to get near as much in as I wanted to. But um, I think there's a lot of good information there. Bristol, by the way, has won eight Appalachian League championships, the last being in 2002. They've not had a winning season t- since 2008. And, and what's kind of unusual is in 50 years of baseball, they've only had 17 winning seasons. And they, t- they tell you if they if people, you know, if winning brings people out, apparently that hadn't worked here in Bristol because there hasn't been a lot of winning, but there has been developing. And that's what baseball is about at this level. You're trying to develop these guys into major league players and if whether or not you win or lose they obviously want to win if they don't they don't they're not going to get upset about it because they're out here trying to get ready to move on up the system and get to the major leagues so i hope you'll enjoy the article and enjoy enjoy the pirates get out there and watch them play there's still another month of the season to go and then they'll be back next year um contract doesn't run out to the end of 2020 and with uh, with bristol and pittsburgh and hopefully that'll be um Re, uh, re-up, but we don't know that for now, but hopefully they will be. But uh, please go out and enjoy the games. Um, there's a lot of history of Bristol baseball, and it's not just from the last 50 years. But like I said, it started in 1911. Uh, they, in 1922, they won their first Affy League title. And, um, you know, they've been around ever since. They've developed such athletes. You know, they've had Bobby Thompson played here years ago and Ron Nutshaw, who had the 27 strikeouts in 1952 for the Twins. So, just pretty amazing uh, history they've had here. There's a lot to it and a lot more we can find about it. And I uh, just hope you'll enjoy the article on Sunday. Uh, 
please read it over and uh, enjoy it and come out and see some baseball. And thank you for your attention. And have a good day and a good summer. Thank you. Bye-bye. And now here's Tom Netherlander with my take. Welcome to my take and uh, the Bristol Herald Courier. I'm your host, Tom Netherland, and um, this week's guest is Eugene Wolf. He is a musician. He's an actor, renowned, uh, renowned actor, and particularly renowned for having portrayed A.P. Carter on and keep on the sunny side at Barter Theater, uh, highly critically acclaimed uh, for that role, and and I would add uh, acclaimed for each role that the man's ever played. Uh, if you want a part acted and acted well, you call Eugene Wolf because not only can he act, he can sing. He sings like you you only wish you could. <laughs> anyway, here he is, uh, the man who created. The absolutely mesmerizing show, one-man show, The Book of Mammal. Here he is, Eugene Wolf. Welcome to my take in the Bristol Herald Courier, Eugene. Hi, Tom. Thank you. Thank you for having me here today on this podcast. I'm happy to be here. Uh, aren't you happy to be anywhere? I'm happy to be here on this earth. Absolutely, man. I just hit 65. I hit Medicare age. Hey, baby, I'm still here. <laughs> well, hey, 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 that's an accomplishment, right? Absolutely. 65. Gee, what you, what you been doing all of these years, Eugene? Well, what have I been doing? I've been acting like a fool, mostly, you know, and um, actually found my way into, um, well, fool acting. Um, at an early age, from the time I was two years old, my grandma, she saw that I loved the Valleydale Pigs. She said, all right, I know exactly what you're going to do with your life. And so, lo and behold, I'm a ham. Yeah, mammals always know, don't they? She, knows, she knew everything, man. She sure did. Well, they're, they're, they're just, all of that wisdom bottled up in all those years, you know, that's, uh, if you ever need to know, just ask somebody's grandma, right? Mammals is the word. What, what play was it that did it for you? Was there a particular play, a particular song, a particular musician that, that, that just lassoed you and pulled you in and went, yeah, that's it? You know, probably, that's a good question. I think probably Loretta Lynn. Loretta Lynn was the first person that there was something coming out of that voice, something coming out of that heart that I responded to. You know, it was, um, I mean, I had tried Connie Francis early on, but she did a thing called country, Golden Country and Western Hits, and we all know Connie Francis. She was a great singer, but she wasn't a country person. No, no. L Loretta, Loretta was one of my people. You know, and I could tell from the way she sounded, from the way she looked, that she was singing about things that I was part of. And so I think Loretta, I'd watch her on the Wilburn Brothers show when she first came on. Me and Mama would watch her together, and we were both thrilled. And I think, I think it was the honesty that was, that was coming out of her. And like I said, her voice was connected directly to her heart. Well, and she's, she's one of those people. She, she was the voice and is the voice for a lot of people who really don't have a voice, on the certainly not on the national stage. Mm -hmm. She represented Appalachia, right? Absolutely. Yeah, you know, I talk about this in the book of Memo. 
Um, I was raised by my grandmother, of course, my grandparents, and my mother would call sometimes late at night. I'd be in bed, and I'd hear the phone ring, and Mama would have to field the call because my mama was calling to talk about the bad things that were happening in her life. Uh, her husband was a truck driver, so he, she was lonely. He, uh, he drank songs about the bottle. Uh, he cheated songs. So Loretta, Loretta was singing about the things that I overheard Mama talking to my mama mm. about late at night. So that was like somewhere to land, you wow. know. So when Loretta was singing, "Don't come home a drinking with loving on your mind," you knew exactly what she was talking about, didn't you? Well, yeah, I did. You know, I was raised by my grandparents, but I'd spend the summer with my mama, and <clears throat> I saw that world. Uh, it was a whole different world than I was used to in Greenville, Tennessee. Mm. I mean, I loved my mama. My mama loved me. We had a wonderful time. We laughed together. That's what my mother and I shared together was laughing. We would make each other cry laughing. Mm. And so we had a wonderful, wonderful time together, but the situation was different. My house in Greenville with Mama and Daddy was was solid, it was safe, it was sound. And so I would leave that and go to the summer for adventure. And sometimes the adventure got out of hand. Well, that is fodder for songs, right? Absolutely. That's exactly what Loretta was singing about. Yeah. I, had a, I had a friend in Memphis. I was working dinner theater down there, and he was from, um, his daddy was a truck driver too, and he would go out on his mom. And uh, uh-huh. she picked up the phone one day, and on the other end of the line was Loretta, the record, saying, I'd like to introduce myself. I'm the other woman, the other woman in your husband's life. Whoa. So that's, that's art becoming life. That's life becoming art. That's how do you, where's the line there? That's country music, Eugene. <laughs> it is country music, man. And that's what I grew up with. And so, yeah, Loretta's the first one that kicked the door open for me. As Bill Anderson said uh, in a song that he wrote that Porter Wagner recorded, uh, that it's the cold, hard truth, isn't it? Oh, yeah, man, it is. You know, and thank God we have music. Yeah, yeah, you know how important. And this is this is almost an unfair question, but but I like I like the replies that I get from this. How important is music to you? Because you know, for a lot of folks, there are a lot of folks in this country. They listen to music just to have something nice to hear. But there are a lot of people, and I would wager most of the people listen to music for the substance. There's something in there that helps to make them tick, that helps to make meaning of their, of their existence. What does it do for you? Well, music, good, good heavens. You know, life is music. I have come to, you know, I, I, my guru, I have a guru that I read from India from the turn of the century. And he says that music is as close as we get to where we came from. And and I don't mean a geographical location. You know, it's it's interesting to me. So that so, like I said, life is music. Um, the rhythms of life, it, everything's vibration. So, music. I love the music that we, that I respond to or that you respond to. I love the notion that it's reminding us of something that happened 
before we arrived here on mm. earth. Not that even something happened because that gives it a linear, but what did we hear when I hold a brand new baby? Yeah. Like I've, I've held an 11 hour old baby before. Oh. And I think, what does this baby know? What did this baby bring with it? Mm. Now we knock that out of them, you know, by the time they're 10 or five or whatever. Now I don't mean that literally, although sometimes, uh, but you know, it gets covered over, but what do we know when we get here? And it's my notion that what we know is that music that brought us here. And we just continue that journey while we're here on earth. Well, you know, that's the thing. It can be a newborn newborns right on up to folks who are taking their last breath. We all listen to it and we all respond to it. I've never seen, have you ever seen a newborn? Have you ever seen a baby or a grandfather or a grandmother? Uh, have you ever seen one not respond to it? No. And you know, and what's, what's fascinating to me right now, they're understanding that people with dementia, people with Alzheimer's, oh, yeah. Yeah. people who've checked out as it were, can be reached with the music, with their music. What is it yep. that they responded to in you know when they were a kid, when they were a teenager, when something, some part of their life that music opens that door again? And it's amazing to see these folks. There's a documentary, I can't think of the name of it right now, but about this very subject of music's the key. Well, you know, Lightning Charlie, you know Charlie. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, Lightning, Lightning occasionally performs in nursing homes, and he told me a while back that that uh, that it's happened time and again, that, that there will be a person in the crowd or people in the crowd um, who have advanced Alzheimer's, and he's been told that they, they don't respond. They don't, they don't remember it. However, when he sings these songs, and he purposely uh, brings up things such as You Are My Sunshine or Hey Good Looking or something like that, he said, you'd be shocked to see how many of them are singing the words right back to me. I mean, well, what, what does that say about the power of music? I mean, you've seen it, you know, whether it's in one of your productions, one of your theatrical productions, or, or one of your concerts, you, you see firsthand how people react to it. How does it move you? Well, a story I tell a lot because it was very important to me when I was doing A.P. Carter, when we first started doing that play at the Barter, and all kinds of folks were coming to the theater that I'm convinced had never been in the theater because suddenly there was something about the Carter family. And, you know, the Carter family history reaches way back. It reaches back before them because they saved those songs that came here before they came. So there's something primal about their, their, their songs. But I remember one time doing the play, singing those beautiful Carter family songs, those beautiful harmonies, and I looked into the audience. It was at stage two at Barter. And, you know, it's very tight, very intimate. And there was a little woman sitting in the front row. I know she was in her 90s. And it had been raining outside, so she still had her raincoat on. She still had her little rain hat her little rain bonnet. She had her pocketbook 
uptight against her because she didn't know who these people were in uh, that theater. Uh. Big cataract, thick glasses, which, you know, that image right there is very much part of my life anyway. Uh. But I looked out at that little woman, and I, like I said, I thought she's never been to the theater. And suddenly, unfolding in front of her eyes is her childhood, mm. is her story. Because nobody had done anything about the Carter family. Nobody made a movie or a play. And suddenly somebody was telling the story of the things that were important to her when she was a kid. And as I watched her, as I would get a glance of her, she became seven years old wow. sitting there. So, you know, I, can, I have the capacity to understand what that is. I'm a very lucky person. Many, many people have it. But some people's eyes and ears are shut. So I feel very lucky and I feel like music is a big part of having opened my <coughs> eyes and heart and ears. Well, you know, when you look into the crowd and you see, as with that uh, little old lady, and you see the, um, that, uh, that person transform in the moment because of something that's going on on stage, uh, what does it do for you? Um, uh, whether it was you channeling A.P. Carter or whether it's you and your, and your uh, one-person play with the, the Book of Mammal, what does it do to you when you see that transformation of that, perhaps just that one person? Well, that's why I do it. Yeah. That's what I ask for every time I go on stage, is to let that happen. And so I trust that it is happening. You know, I just get glances every now and then. I don't really, you know, there's certain roles that you do that you're able to look directly into the audience and address them. But I depend on, it, it lifts me. Um, I mean, it, it's the light flowing through me to the audience and back to mm. me. It's that connection of the thing that's happening. It's why theater is so powerful and performance because we're so used to screens and autumn and electronics and all these things that the actual human connection is happening less and less so that when you have a very potent role or a potent play and the audience is responding to it as one heart mm. there's nothing better mm. so for me it just it's why i do it so i count on it but i mean i don't I'm, i don't count i mean i don't um, take it for granted but it's why i do what i do you know, um, who um, who was your who was your mamaw? Who is this Ms. Raider, Ms. Raider, that you that you uh, bring back to life every time you perform the Book of Mamaw? You know, how would you describe your mamaw to, to all of us who never had a chance to meet her? I think the first quality that I would have to uh, attribute to her: she was a Christian woman. Uh. That was the most important thing in her life. Mm -hmm. She was a firm believer in the doctrine of the Church of Christ. So that drove her action through life. It defined who she was. And the way it defined who she was was love and compassion and kindness. Mm -hmm. Now there's a flip side to that coin. There's a flip side to serving doctrine. And that would get in the way sometimes. And in that, I believed, <clears throat> she believed that the Church of Christ people were the only people going to heaven. Mm. So that 
she came around to understanding that the the how fallible that belief was as she got older as she got older but as a child we believed that or she believed it so but like i said the good part of that was that love compassion and kindness she treated everybody the same she was a very funny woman sometimes funny in spite of herself uh, she never met a stranger we'd go to the hospital she'd open every door and find out who was in there and what was wrong with them um, you know and uh, she was um, she was a sales lady she sold Avon she sold Mason shoes we tried Amway for a while but then but then she decided that was maybe not right she did the green stamps didn't she Oh Lord, yes. We had. Oh yeah. What, what was it? Uh, what was it? H and H or something? S and H. S and H. It's been a long time, Eugene. S and H green stamps. So she did the green stamps, oh, right? Yeah. I would, you know, I loved putting the stamps in the books for her. And the S and H Green Stamp Redemption Center was in the Super Dollar, which was just you know five hundred yards from my house. Wow. So I would stand at the Super Dollar S and H Green Stamp Redemption counter, and I got to know those women. So you know, I've gotten to know. So many women who are, well, I usually say I am my mamaw, wow. you know, because I took those qualities on. And that's fine and dandy by me. Because if I took my grandma, if I'm my grandmother, then I try to have that love, that compassion, and that kindness. I'm not always successful. Who is? But at least it's a guiding light for me. Oh, uh, you know, you've performed this show for a while now, you know, the Book of Mammal. Um, you just performed it recently at the Down Home in Johnson City. But as I understand it, you have something much bigger in mind, uh, much, much bigger for the Book of Mammal. Your Mammal is going to be, uh, shall we say, going places she may not have ever imagined, right? <laughs> yes. I'm taking Mammal. I'm taking the Book of Mammal to New York City in October. I'm going to be part of a festival called the United Solo Festival. And it's a, a hundred one-man, one one-woman shows. And uh, people like Olympia Dukakis, Michael Moore have performed in this festival. There's a, a Hume Cronin and Jessica Tandy's daughter, Tandy Cronin, has a one-woman show this, this year in the festival. So, yeah, I'm taking Memo to 42nd Street, of all places, to... Um, on October 26th at 4 p.m. at a, a Saturday afternoon show. My show's 85 minutes. You can come in at 4 o'clock, be out by 5.30, and go have a wonderful dinner in Manhattan. But, yeah, I'm taking Memal to New York City. What would she say about that? She would be so happy. When I first started telling stories about her, in the road, when I was with the road company in Johnson City, we did a play called Echoes and Postcards about growing up in East Tennessee. And I began telling the stories about her, about, particularly about her taking me to sell Avon with her. Mm. And she, she would cover her face as if she was embarrassed, but then she would peek through her fingers to see who was watching and laughing. So, Mamal, I can't believe I'm taking Mamal to New York City. And she wouldn't be able to believe it either, but finally I'm doing the thing she wanted more than anything. On She wanted me, not that I'm going to be, but she always wanted to be, to be a big star. Wow. And so, you know, this is me taking her. She's the star now. So I'm taking her star to New York City mm -hmm. to give people a chance to see what that love and that compassion and that kindness 
looks like from my vantage point in Greenville, Tennessee. When are you going to perform that show again here in the Tri-Cities? Uh, do you have anything scheduled at, 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 at the moment? or? No, I don't have anything scheduled. I do have a – I tell stories from the show at different in different venues, um, but – Performance of Book of Mammal, I don't have anything but New York at the moment. But I'm doing a show on Monday night, July 29th, at the Barter Theater with Tyler Hughes uh, from the uh, Empty Bottle String Band. He's a magnificent banjo guitar player, tells great storyteller. So he and I are sharing the night, 6.30 to 8 on Monday night as part of the Virginia Highlands Festival, and it's called Sounds of Appalachia. And so I will tell a few mammal stories, and I probably will read a couple of poems by Joe Carson. Um, Just uh, what the Appalachian voice, the sounds of Appalachia. Uh, How much are the tickets for that? $10. Ten bucks, by all means. Uh, My goodness. So Mammal's going to make an appearance. Oh, she always does. Mamaw goes everywhere you go, doesn't she? I am Mamaw, so she won't let me go anywhere without her. Well, hello, Mamaw. It's nice to meet you. It's nice to meet you. You know, um, you know, uh, Eugene. Um, how did, and uh, one of the songs that you perform in in a book of, in the book of Mamaw is an Annie Lennox tune, mm-hmm. "Beautiful Child." Mm-hmm. Uh, how does it feel in that moment for you when those lyrics are lacing through your through, through your being, and you see them, you see them touching people out there in the audience. How does it feel in that moment when you feel the lyrics yourself? Oh, uh, you know, sometimes you fight um, tears. Yeah. Sometimes you have to yeah. because it wells up. Mm. It wells up. Like I said, if you're not going to bring it, then why do it? Mm. So when I sing that song, it's a culmination of everything we've watched. In the be- from from the beginning of the show until that point, you can feel it's winding down, and I actually think about the child in everybody that's in that audience. Mm. Mm. We should never lose touch with that, should we? No, not at all. You know, because as with um, and keep on the sunny side. You know, when you brought back AP Carter, you brought him back. Jeanette Carter told me after having seen the show. She told me, she said, I never thought I would get to see my daddy again, but I thought I did. She said, I saw him again. And you know how she reacted. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, you, with your show, you're bringing your mammal back. You're bringing your childhood back. Mm-hmm. How does that move you? Well, uh, like I said, it's a, uh, I can't get caught up in so much in, in how... It just does. It does. It wells up. It makes me know I'm alive. You know, I mean, it, not that we don't know we're alive, but some days we forget. We do. You know, do. sometimes your ears and eyes, like I said, and heart are closed. So I think my job is to help you and help me at the same time reopen mm-hmm. those eyes, ears, and heart. That's what. That's what my job is as a performer. Well, and, and, and let's face it. I, I, I think part of the beauty of your show, of that particular show, is that folks who come to see that show, you know, who for a lot of those people, you bring their mammal back to them. You bring, and you referenced it, you bring back their childhood, if but for a little while. Isn't that part of the reason why we go to watch The Wizard of Oz? 
to, to reclaim some snippet of our youth, of our childhood. You know, I mean, my goodness, a lot of folks have no idea how to reclaim the past. You have figured it out. And like I said, yeah, and I'm a very lucky man. I'm a very lucky man, and I understand that part of it too. And so I'm very thankful. Uh, you, I thank God. Mm. I ask every time I go on stage, I ask for the water, the light to come through me for whoever needs it, whoever wants it. Mm. And so I try, I try to be grateful. You know, we're successful sometimes, and sometimes we're not. Well, Eugene, thank you so much for coming by, and thanks so much for your time. Thanks for so much for your creations. My goodness. You know, the thing about a show such as uh, The Book of Mammal is that I can't wait for what is yet to come. What's coming next down the pipeline, Eugene? Well, I've got a couple of things in the works. You know, the, there are a couple of directions I could go, and right now I'm at the crossroads. Um, I, I have another play in me about my father who I never knew. I have sudden, in the past two years, I have discovered that I, I always thought I was an only child. I've discovered I have three brothers and a sister Whoa. from different mothers. Wow. So my father was what you might call a gadabout. But the story of me having found those folks is fascinating. So that's a possibility. Um, this whole thing about the sounds of Appalachia, um, I, like, I like being an ambassador for where Appalachia is right now. For you, what does it mean to be an Appalachian? What, what does it mean to be an Appalachian? What does it mean to be a Tennessean? Well, to, an Appalachian, you know, I'm struggling actually with that question yeah. because we always thought of it in terms of the past. You know, we all knew that poverty, we all saw the pictures, yada, yada, yada. I didn't even know I lived in Appalachia growing mm. up in Greenville. Mm. I was not even sure until I came home from college at 22. I went up to the old field. In, I, lived, I grew up in town. We had an old field behind my house. And we used to play up there. I went up there when I was 22, and I looked and went, oh, my. Look at those, like the most dazzling view of the great smoky mountains that you've ever seen in your life. And then I began to realize that I'm part of those mountains. And so what it means about to be Appalachian today is because is listen to my sound. I think language and sound helps define people more than anything. My sounds are part of this, the hills of this place, the shapes of it. And the example I use is with Sarah Carter. When she sings that song, Just a Few More Days, she sings about her mother dying. And she sings, Just a few more days of sorrow. That dip is like digging in the dirt mm. and digging a grave in Poor Valley. And if you, you don't get much more Appalachian than that. No, it gets right to the essence, doesn't it? My goodness. Well, Eugene, thank you so much for coming by the, the Herald Courier today. Thank you so much for doing my take, the, the podcast. And um, we'll see each other down the road, my friend, I promise you. All right. Thank you, Tom. It was a delight. Fairly well, brother. Until next time. All right. Bye-bye. On 
the record is made possible by David Cricker, Delana Matthews, David McGee, Nate Hubbard, and Tim Hayes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.